Welcome to Joyce's podcast series, Live Curiously. I'm Ken Smith, and I cover the performing arts in Asia for the Financial Times. Since the 1990s, when I was based in New York, I've been writing about what, in the broadest possible terms, we call classical music. I say it that way because the music I'm drawn to is usually a lot younger than me. It's not that I don't like Mahler or Beethoven, but so much has been written about them that I sometimes wonder what I have to add. And with the century's worth of recordings we can all listen to, I often question what many musicians today have to add as well. But then, every so often, you run into someone like Jaap van Sweden. The first piece he conducted as music director of the Hong Kong Philharmonic was a new work by a young Chinese composer. But that same night, he also made a symphony by Beethoven, the most performed composer in history, ringing people's ears like it was the first time they'd ever heard it. It was one of those moments when you realize the kind of power that erupts when the right artist connects with both the music and the audience. You find that even music from hundreds of years ago still has a lot to say to us today. In this episode, I speak with Yap from his home in Amsterdam, the city he left as a young violinist to train at Juilliard and then returned to in 1979 to become the youngest ever concertmaster of the legendary Royal Concertgebouw Orchestra. Encouraged by Leonard Bernstein to try conducting, he started with small groups in the Netherlands and steadily worked his way into a remarkable international career. For the past couple of years, well, until 2020, Yap had been shuttling between Amsterdam and his two current orchestras, the Hong Kong Philharmonic and the New York Philharmonic. When we spoke, Europe was going into another pandemic lockdown. Though frustrated by not seeing musicians and audiences in either New York or Hong Kong, Yap was happily spending more time with the Papageno Foundation, an organization he founded with his wife using music to connect with autistic children, which, he says, is probably the audience hardest hit by the pandemic. Well, Maestro, most of the conductors I know started out as pianists, which means that they, they're used to reading the full score, they're used to having a, an overall vision already to the music that they do. You came up as a violinist working within the orchestra. Now, how does that sensibility work for you now? Does that shape your perspective differently, do you think, than it was if you came from a different instrument? Well, I think that there are some advantage and disadvantage. I think that as a pianist, in the beginning, it helps you a lot. But as a string player, at the end, an orchestra, it's all about sound and how to make that sound, especially from the string instruments, but also from the winds. And I think that from a perspective of a string instrument and knowing exactly how to produce a certain sound, how to make the phrases as you feel them, as you think, and as you listen to them, it is maybe helping actually a lot for me to reach the goal what we all have in our mind yeah so you know as a pianist especially in the beginning of your career you have an uh, an overall perspective of a piece faster but that i learned after a certain certain amount of years i know a lot of conductors you know some of your colleagues have come playing oboe or trumpet and i've also seen them being particularly hard on oboists and trumpet players how hard are you on the string players in your orchestra, since that was your instrument? I'm never hard on them. I'm always interested in how to get the best. You know, it is very difficult to be different than who you are for yourself. I was always, I would say, a pretty fanatic on my perfect playing, to be honest. And so that is what I like. When I have a certain sound in my mind, I will not give up. I was like this with myself. And I'm actually also with the orchestra like that. And on one way, it brought me a lot. And on the other way, it made my life and some people in the orchestra's lives a little bit harder. 
because you never give up. I mean, I never give up. And I always know that there is, an, there is a way how to reach this so-called ideal sound. But it is not always the most easy way to get things done. Yeah. Well, you mentioned earlier that you were encouraged by Leonard Bernstein to be a conductor, which is a pretty high uh, pedigree of, of coming in. What does it feel like now that you are actually running the orchestra that Leonard Bernstein famously ran for, for 10 years, the New York Philharmonic? Well, the shoes I was stepping in were big shoes. Not only Bernstein, but also Toscanini, uh, Mahler all these great names. But, you know, the, the interesting thing is that I always keep in my mind that the one thing what connects us is music. Mm. And that is, I am with the music already since I was uh, six years old. And so I know these shoes are very big, but on the other hand, I know no other language than the language of the music in a way. So it feels actually very natural. The only thing what feels very unnatural at the moment is not being with the New York Philharmonic and with the Hong Kong Philharmonic already for almost a year. I would not say that makes me nervous, but it makes me very unhappy, especially when we are talking about New York. You know, I was there for two years, two seasons, and the chemistry was going to start to really to work well. And at the point that I thought I was going out in the world with them, going places, going to Europe for a big tour and things like that to, you know, to see some really good flowers of our, our wonderful work of the first two seasons. That was the moment that everything stopped. And the thing with the Hong Kong Phil is that after a certain amount of years, we produced already some very good flowers with the ring cycle, for instance. For that reason, I feel very uncomfortable with the situation with, that we were going to blossom at the point that we had to stop. Yeah. Well, you talk about two very different cities and two very different orchestras. I would really like to know, because I myself am a longtime New Yorker, and the first time I stepped off the plane in Hong Kong, I felt a really strange connection to that city. And I felt a certain energy that, despite how different the cities were, it just felt connected to New York in some strange way. And over the past 20 years, I felt a real synergy between those two cities. So I'm curious about how you feel between making that long-term flight back and forth between Hong Kong and New York so frequently. What kind of confluences do you see between the two? Well, you know, in your question, there was already an answer. And that is that you felt that although it is a different world, synergy plays a huge role in both cities. I think that if there is a difference in those two cities, uh, of course, they're both cities built on business. The Hong Kong Stock Exchange, the Dow Jones in New York, you know, there are two worlds which are really very important part of the DNA of these cities. The interesting thing is that, of course, next to this business city in New York, you have an incredible cultural life. And you see that Hong Kong is building on this cultural life. You see that this cultural life is younger and doesn't have that say, history. If you see the Hong Kong Phil, it's not even 50 years existing and then you have the New York Phil, 177 years. So there is a difference there in the cultural life. So that is a big difference. It has a much older soul in New York, and both are actually driven by this energy. And so that is the thing what connects them so much. 
And that is also why it is easy for me to work with both orchestras. It's interesting too, because when you have sometimes the same pieces being played in both orchestras, I mean, the Corleano First Symphony, I remember seeing in Hong Kong and then seeing in New York, for example. When you play each of those pieces, it's a very different experience if you're playing it in Hong Kong or New York. Could you talk a little bit about that? Do you feel that on stage? Well, yes, of course, because as I told you, you have an orchestra in New York, which has, you know, New York, it is like this. They have their way of playing these certain pieces for 177 years. And I have my, my own world bringing to this stage. And there you meet in the middle. And the same thing happens in Hong Kong, but they don't have this experience of 177 years old. They have the experience of playing 47 years. And then so they need a little bit more input from me. That is a difference. And then there is, of course, a completely different connection with the audience. The audience in New York, they know pieces well. They're more opinionized, I would say. They heard these pieces by so many different music directors. And with the Hong Kong audience, they're also less experienced, maybe. But then at the same time, uh, the enthusiasm of the audiences are on the same level again. It's all again on the same energy. So it is a different experience and at the same time it is as interesting and as uh, enthusiastic as any time I'm playing these pieces or in New York or Hong Kong. Yeah. One of the things that I noticed too is that when you're in Hong Kong, of course, you work with the Chinese concert master. And when you're in New York, you work with a Chinese concert master. Yeah. Do those kind of th what does that say really about classical music today and, and where we're looking forward in the future? I think that classical music is an international language and classical music is not interested in where you're from, how you look. They are just interested in people who love to make this music. And I think there is nothing more international and there are no borders for classical music. And that's the great thing. I'm in the middle of that. When your name was first announced in New York, there was a lot of speculation how much new music and living composers would figure into your playbook there. Because you weren't yep. particularly known for that. You were particularly known for taking very non-traditional approaches with very traditional repertory. And yep. making people hear sometimes, uh, like it was the first time that they encountered Beethoven. Which I have to say, for people who are longtime subscribers and have many Beethoven recordings, that's quite an accomplishment. But in terms of new music, you know, your first piece that you conducted in New York as music director was a world premiere by a young Chinese composer, Conrad Tao, who you brought to the attention of the Hong Kong Phil. So I'm, I'm very curious about that. What is the desire or the passion that you have for working with music of your time, of your place, and making that part of the tradition of the future? Well, you know, the tradition of the New York Philharmonic, they brought to the stage more than 650 new pieces in their history. And if you want to be part of that history, you need to continue that history. Not only that, but it is in the DNA of the New York Philharmonic to bring world premieres and to bring new pieces. And that was one of the attractive things of the New York Philharmonic. At the same time, you see in Hong Kong that I did more and more and more of the composers from the East and also local composers. So don't misunderstand my, my love 
for new music. I think that without new music and local composers from America or from Hong Kong or China or wherever it is from, classical music will not be alive. It is kept alive by these new composers. At the same time, I'm proud that I can bring all the time new composers to the scene and encourage them to work with me to write new pieces. And I hope that this will continue for the years to come that I'm on stage in Hong Kong and in New York. One of the things that's also striking about uh, what you've done in just two years in New York is how much the programming is not just about new music and, and about the musical tradition, but also how much you really connect that to broader social issues. I mean, you have thematically woven pieces uh, like Julia Wolf's Fire in My Mouth with women's suffrage, uh, with immigration, with all of these things that have really tied into the current political and social agenda of the U.S. How far can you go with something like that in terms of making music really part of the, the broader discussion? Well, the thing is this. I think that the issue of the right for women to vote is not, an, I would say, an issue for the United States only. It is an, an issue for the world. And it was 100 years ago that in, in the US, women had the right to vote. And maybe in Europe, it was a little earlier. And maybe in other countries, it was a little later. But still, I thought it is a very important sign. And instead of remembering 250 years of Beethoven, that was for me personally a more important issue than just remembering that Beethoven was born 250 years ago. So I think these not just local issues, but more worldwide issues are the most important and most attractive things for me to bring. Well, you know, I haven't seen you this year much in New York or Hong Kong. So I'm very curious, how do you work with an orchestra in Hong Kong, for example, if you're not there? Well, you know, musically, I cannot do anything. The only thing what we can do is that you make a plan. And then in the situation where we are in now, we need to have a second uh, plan. So if things are not working, then you need to have another plan where it will work. And so you need to have an, uh, a sort of an agenda. If plan A is not working, you need to have plan B, plan C, plan D. And then at the same time, I have New York, of course. So it's, it's like you are all the time planning and important for me is not to give up on uh, being enthusiastic about planning because all the time you see that you want to do this and then it is being canceled. Then you want to do this and it's being canceled. So important thing is that we need to keep the good spirit and that there will be a moment that we have the vaccine, that we are injected and that we work. Has the time that you've spent away from New York and away from Hong Kong changed your plans for how you want to work with the orchestra and work with those audiences in the future? I don't know. I mean, maybe it has changed. I don't think that people change so easy as a personality, but the circumstances change. And so some other things are getting more important. For instance, that I do like it not to travel so much. So maybe I'm going to see in the future that if I go to certain places that I would like to stay a little longer on one place. I did lose, for instance, a lot of weight. I lost almost 60 pounds and I sport a lot. I also learned that being on an airplane every two or three weeks 
is actually not so good for my body. So I think that I'm going to change a little bit my plans, at least try. Go someplace, stay longer, it's better for my health. And it is also even better for my performance, I think. Because I could be more clear, more rested, and enjoy also the place where I am actually more. For the rest, I don't know how it changed me. I mean, we have to see how that works when I am on the podium again. Well, one of the things that you do when you're not on the podium is work with your wife in a significant amount of work supporting children with autism. Yeah. That's been a, a big concern of yours. And your work involves both a central care facility in the Netherlands and a, a network of music therapists who yeah. they work with children in their homes. How has the COVID pandemic really changed that part of your work? What are you able to do at this point? Well, we saw that a lot of children, they needed more attention. The houses and the facilities, what we have needed uh, a lot of attention from me. And we are opening uh, some new houses in the coming years. And so we were able to work a lot on that, to set up things like that. And the music therapists are going even more to the children than they did before because the children are more isolated than before because of the COVID. So I'm actually very happy to be here at that point and help the children. You know, it is, I almost can say that <clears throat> we are not on this earth to get, but also to give. And that is actually what you take with you. And so that experience actually is more clear in this time than before. Well, you're also talking about a very different kind of connection. And I'm curious about now that children around the world are being educated by Zoom and other platforms, is that something that you can incorporate into this part of your work? Or is that something that doesn't work with that particular group of people? You know, the thing is this, that what we learn more and more is that autistic children it's not easy for them, but actually when you encourage them, they love the eye-to-eye -eye contact with them, at least the children we are working with. And what we like to say is eye-to-eye -eye contact is heart-to-heart -heart contact. When you see, for instance, in the movie Rain Man, that Dustin Hoffman as, as the Rain Man, he learned to do a lot of things. And then there is a scene in his movie that there is a lady searching for eye-to-eye -eye contact with him and want to give him a kiss. And then he flips out because that connection is difficult for him. And that is actually what we are seeing a lot now, that eye-to-eye, heart-to-heart contact, very physical contact is not so easy for these children. And we encourage uh, a lot on that now these days. I think that there are a lot of people, uh, normal, healthy grown-ups, who are also losing a lot of their social skills in the past year in terms of just yeah. what it means to connect with someone. Uh, yeah. There are no hugs. There are no great dinners. There, all of this is, is a thing of the past, uh, or at least currently a thing of the past. When we come back to the concert world in Hong Kong and, and New York, what is that going to mean? I mean, we, we're used to now seeing things on screen a lot, but... Will the concert experience itself change a lot? What will it be like going to a concert next year when we're all vaccinated? I hope it will be the same, the same experience. It is not different than before. I mean, 
the thing is that the physical contact will be maybe a little bit different because there is fear of this physical contact. But once we are able to have uh, the vaccine and to have an injection and it seems to work, then I think we can slowly by slowly go back to the old way, actually. And that's what we are all hoping for. I'm not sure if it is going to be that case. I mean, nobody knows. Even the doctors, they don't know. We are all hoping for it. Let me say it like that. Yeah. How much of what we've learned from the pandemic do you think will stick uh, for us personally or in the concert experience or in terms of new ways that orchestras and other organizations can still remain you know, connected to their public even though they don't come to the concert hall? Well, what we learned of, these, of the situation of this season is that as musicians being on stage with each other, with 100 people, and have an audience of two or 3,000 people, with a pandemic as we see now, we are very, very vulnerable. And thank God there is social media, but at the same time, there is something between us, and that is this little camera. What we are all hoping for, of course, is that it is wonderful that we can see concerts on screen and all these things. But to give a live performance, there is nothing else better than that. Yes, I, I hope that uh, the people realize, and I think they do, that when you see things on screen, something is definitely missing. I think so. Yes, the, you know, the warm contact between an orchestra and its audience uh, is something that is unpayable, in fact. It's a gathering together and it's a giving and taking of energy. And, you know, that's very hard to bring that to a screen and to have the same connection. So now that you're locked down uh, still in Amsterdam, is there anything that you want to share with the Hong Kong audiences? I would like to share a lot of things with the audience. First of all, I want to tell them that I miss them. I miss making music for them. And I cannot wait to come back. But as the situation is now in Europe, it's worse than uh, actually the first or the second wave. We have a very bad situation here. We are going in a lockdown for multiple weeks, I think four to six weeks. And, you know, I wish there was a way to come to Hong Kong for me as soon as possible. But at this time, I'm very afraid to tell them exactly when I'm going to be in Hong Kong. Please. Don't give up on the orchestra. Please don't give up on your love for music and art overall. We will be back. It's just that we cannot tell you exactly when. But we are all dependent on uh, what's happening in Europe, in Hong Kong. We are dependent on what our leaders are telling us to do. And at the same time, don't give up the hope that we will see each other at certain point. You've had a lot of time this year away from Hong Kong, New York. How have you been able to really indulge your, your curiosities and dig into new things that you just haven't had a chance to experience before? Well, one of the things I did actually was uh, I played a lot of chess. I sports a lot. I saw some really good series on television and for the rest, you know, sometimes uh, have a very different contact with my children than before. So all with all, it is not a lost time for me. It gave me and brought me yes, a, a very different experience. At the same time, 
sometimes, you know, you really want to go on stage and really make music again. That is the, I would say, a little bit the frustration of these times. But, you know, since it is not possible, should not um, last too long, this frustration, because, you know, it, it leads to nothing. Well, does it perhaps lead to something? Do you think that perhaps the time alone will lead to a different level of relationship to the music or seeing something that you didn't notice before or perhaps relate to it differently? Well, look, uh, for one thing is absolutely true. When I will start, there will be a very fresh look to everything I'm doing on stage. And that is absolutely true. Yeah. Well, you look great. Obviously, you're going to need an entirely new wardrobe by the time we see each other again. I did already. Oh, very good. <laughs> both already. Once we finally release the pandemic pause button on public life, Japan Sweden is poised to become a model for conductors in the 21st century, leading organizations in Europe and America, as well as Asia. But as he said, the pandemic may change what all that means. You may not see it in any one concert, but over time, you'll see a difference in the length and quality of time our jet-setting stars spend in any one place. Because, really, every hour spent on the plane is an hour not spent with your audience on the ground. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, stay curious. Until next time.